from Car Rigs and Ingram, this is It Figures, the CRI podcast, an accounting, advisory, and industry-focused podcast for business and organization leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone who is looking to go beyond the status quo. Hey, welcome to another episode of It Figures, the CRI podcast. Uh, today, we're here to talk about making sound economic decisions for uh, construction contractors. And um, we're going to start by introducing ourselves. I'm Larry May. I'm with the Jackson office of CRI, and I am the subline leader for the construction practice. Uh, I've been working in construction for about 25 years now, and um, a lot of the things we'll be talking about today are things that I've witnessed. Next, we'll go to Bobby Hayes, who's with us also. Uh, hi, I'm Bobby. I am from the Albuquerque office of CRI, and I have been working with contractors for about 40 years. So I think I'm senior to everybody on this podcast. I am Robert Coker in the Birmingham office. I sort of lead the charge in this office in terms of contractors. What makes me a subject matter expert, I guess, would be I'm a good listener. Well, you're, y'all are both great at a lot of things, and we all work together closely. Uh, with the economic slowdown and the, the recovery from COVID-19 and other things, today we wanted to talk about a few things that we've witnessed that contractors seem to do that are probably uh, not the wisest choices. So the first thing we're going to throw out there is one thing that often happens uh, is contractors start buying work because they worry about cash flow and keeping their workforce in, um, in place. And so uh, first to you, Bobby, what are the dangers you've seen from doing this? Well, buying contracts to just make some cash flow come in, that's just a downward spiral um, because it's going to make cash flow problems worse in the long run. And we can understand workforce retention because all contractors are struggling with finding enough skilled labor in this market. But it isn't good to have a short-term solution to a long-term problem. I guess I'll add to that. You know, this is, uh, it draws a lot of parallel to back in 2008 when we saw everything come to a screeching halt, where I saw contractors actually taking on contractors where they had a built-in loss. And there is so much risk in what contractors are willing to take on. They might think they're saving cash on the front end or having cash flow is important. But when you think of the downside risk that they have, it's just tremendous. I mean, they have such great exposure already, even in a good market, you can lose money. In this market where there is that shortfall of labor and skilled labor, there's even more risk. That is exacerbated by the fact that they don't have the skills necessary to perform at the levels that they have historically. And it's, it is true across all industries, especially contracts. I agree with both of you. And what we've often seen is, you know, those, if you bid a job with, with zero gross profit built in, something always goes wrong. There's always something accounted for, and particularly in times uh, of stress where you may have a subcontractor that goes under and you've got to 
uh, get someone else to perform the work. Uh, we've got material and supply shortages right now. We've got delays. So uh, I think in this particular time, it's even a worse idea uh, to do this than, than, well, it's a bad idea anytime, but right now, I think it's even a worse time to try to uh, do that. You know, I think one of the things that these contractors have in the back of their minds, as they often do in in good times, is they go in and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this margin on the front end, you know, especially if it's a fixed price contract. Okay, I'm not going to have much margin on the front end, but their hope is that they're going to get some change orders in that scope of work. And we all know that those are usually pretty fat in terms of margins. And I, and I think that is a real danger because if those don't occur, they don't have that scope change and those change orders related to it, they can find themselves underwater pretty quickly. Well, I've had contractors tell me recently that they were ordering materials for a job in mid-July that they expected to get delivered in early August, which was about their normal time frame, found out they're not going to get it till close to the end of September or early October. So even wishing and hoping for change orders, the ability to execute those timely and get those margins that you might hope for on a change order may not materialize. Not worse yet, you know, liquidating damages because they can't perform the things that are beyond their control. And that's a real risk in some countries. Absolutely. I think all of those are good points. But one thing that um, I think that bears mentioning is one good thing about when you face times like this is taking the opportunity to, to retool your business so that you can be profitable with less volume uh, by reducing your overhead and your indirect direct cost. Um, what, what have y'all seen with that? First to you, Bobby. Well, back to the 2008-2009 comparison, contractors did not aggressively look to their overhead to reduce it. They viewed the circumstances as temporary. They lasted much longer than any of them anticipated. And those that were not willing to make the cuts that were necessary uh, to, to get through a down period or were over leveraged and did not have enough cash on hand, um, the, they didn't survive. So contractors have to take a hard look at what is in their overhead and what is in their indirect costs and have a good budget and control over those areas. You know, one of the things that I think sometimes uh, is underutilized, and, and this isn't necessarily a plug for us, it's just a fact. You know, we are often um, the creature of last resort. You know, they, they call us in when it's time to, you know, be the fixer. But having us come in on the front end and help with that analysis, I think, is invaluable. I mean, you might spend a few dollars on our fees, but what we can help you save by doing a thorough analysis of that process and maybe helping you evaluate the numbers. Uh, I think we're really good at developing strategy as well as evaluating processes to help streamline the business and help you evaluate costs that we see as fact. And everybody's interested in, you know, making the most out of the dollar these days, especially in these uncertain times. I agree with that, Robert. I think that 
it's very hard to do analysis on your own company because you're in the middle of the picture. Someone standing to the side that's objective can look at those numbers and put suggestions on the table that you might not see for your own company. Or better yet, even having an objective view, because I understand, you know, this is their baby and you don't want to call their baby ugly. So it's a real tough process to evaluate at times and see it object. I guess comes to mind the old phrase, they can't see the forest for the tree. Right. I think that one thing that I see too is that you have to be very careful of is we see a lot of peer groups. I know we work with a lot of different contractors and a lot of times ones in the same field. So not only do we have the objective view of looking at a company, but we also have seen other companies that may have done some things that would be helpful. The one thing that I often see um, that I strongly discourage is when contractors view their accounting department as uh, overhead when they really are a vital part of the business to give you the feedback and the reports and the uh, report cards on how you're doing on your bidding versus performance. So that's uh, one thing I think that's a cautionary tale of, yes, you need to be aggressive in reducing overhead and indirect costs, um, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean, unless your accounting staff is very uh, overstaffed, that that would be a department that you would wanna make significant changes to necessarily. Um, one thing I would like to bring up is right now, I know we are seeing a lot of uh, delays with material shipments, material shortages uh, due to the pandemic. Um, what are, how, how are y'all's contractors dealing with that, Bobby and Robert, with, um, because that can have a serious effect on your profitability of the company. And, you know, some of the things I've seen are people, because of fear, are maybe ordering too many supplies on the front end that they may end up getting stuck with. So are y'all seeing that same thing uh, first to you, Bobby? Well, I'm seeing more contractors trying to stick to a just-in-time model that they were used to, that they are really being hit with the reality that the just-in-time model is currently broken. And they, I see them still struggling to adapt to the right balance. You know, I think the um, more and more of mine, yeah, yeah, they do have a very cautious attitude about the promised delivery dates. And so often, you know, these these vendors, it's out of their control. Uh, I'm seeing it across all lines of business, manufacturing as well as construction. And so, you know, you've also got to consider this. You know, we're in a period of tremendous heightened inflationary costs as far as that goes. The materials prices are out the roof. So while you might think it's a great idea to order early, you might be cutting off your nose despite your face because you may be paying, you know, a third more now by buying up in quantity and all you do is lock in future losses because you've way overspent in terms of your material cost. Absolutely. That's that's definitely a lot of what we're seeing right now in this very unusual time we're living through. You know, it's crazy. Uh, OSB that used to be about 12 bucks a sheet, now it's about 48 to $50 a sheet. 
that that's absurd. Right. They can't operate like that very long. And if they don't have the right provisions within their contract that allows them to at least some have some equity or negotiation power to reevaluate contract pricing due to huge increases in material prices, they're they're out of luck. That's exactly right. Well, one thing that another thing that I see uh, that is people trying to anticipate the, the market if they have investments in well, personally and in their businesses and, you know, for fears, uh, you know, clients that last year when the COVID started and the market was crashing cash out and had huge losses where, you know, we know in hindsight, which is always 2020, but the market bounced back better than ever by year end. So. You know, one thing that uh, I see a lot and wanted to know y'all's thoughts on are, do y'all have a lot of, I strongly recommend that clients not try to anticipate the stock market. Oh, I totally agree with you, Larry. That's not what contractors do for a living. Um, I think business people who are good at what they do often think they're good at everything. And that's not necessarily the case. So. I think getting sound financial advice, a good financial advisor to help guide them helps keep from panicking and also from trying to buy back in at the wrong time. So I think it's important to get good quality financial advice for those that are holding investments. You know, it goes like this, right? You've never lost a penny until you sell it. So you've locked in that loss, right? Or by the same token, yes, I totally agree with someone taking some money off the table if they've just had tremendous gains, you know, to preserve some of that cash, right? In other words, to have some liquidity and not be forced to sell in a down market because, my God, it's a roller coaster. I mean, you know, who knows what this whole turmoil and the Middle East with Afghanistan is going to mean. I mean, it's just so many variables that we don't have any control of. You know, COVID with this Delta variant, who knows what we're going to have happen. So it is invaluable that you seek, you know, good, sound financial advice. And, you know, we work so closely with brokers and others, and we can be a part of that sounding board, if you will, as far as helping you make good sound business decisions, such as investments. Not that we're specialists in that, but we see it every day. That is our business. You know, the funny part of that is I see these, it's this great plumbing supply place or this plumbing repair. We fix what your husband tried to, right? We're not all created equal. I know better than to, you know, rewire my house in hopes of saving a dollar and then burning it down. Yeah, I, th I think anytime you're letting fear drive your market, your investment decisions, you're you're going to end up losing. I mean, uh, the same way as you know, being uh, uh, overly uh, you know too big of a risk taker. If you get into too risky of stuff to try to uh, make make money that uh, seems unfair. I know in Mississippi we've had a, a huge Ponzi scheme going on because it looked too good to be true, and it was so. Um, you know, but with with fear of I've seen way too often through too many cycles, uh, short term downturns make people afraid and, the, and they end up with foolish decisions and have those real losses that would have bounced back had they just left them where they were. 
Um, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when I was there at Tuscaloosa, I was actually <clears throat> doing an internship there at Merrill Lynch in 87. And I watched it happen up close and personal. And that was my real first exposure in that world of finance where I saw people just hit the panic button. But again, locking in losses, there's no recovery from that. It's gone. Just sitting tight and just stomaching it. And I know that's hard uh, for people to do because they're, they're fearful. So I know it's not an easy decision, but I highly recommend that you don't make rash decisions because everything has a cycle. It's like a sine wave. You might be in the trough one minute and be at the peak on the next. And beware the lure of cryptocurrency. It's a very, very volatile market. And fortunes have been made and lost in days. And Is that Tales of the Crypt? Yes. <laughs> well, the other thing that I want to talk about that I think that I, I see happen too often um, in fear-based decisions deal with taxes. Uh, you know, no contractor likes to pay taxes. Or probably no one likes to pay taxes, but where they're fearful of a large tax burden, so they end up spending a dollar to save 30 cents, whether it be on vehicles that aren't needed or equipment that's not needed or uh, non-essential bonuses, travel, various things. Um, and I know we all see it. And I try to always say, you know, remember this, you know, you're spending a dollar to save 30 cents. And if you want to flip that around is you could take 70 cents home by just keeping the dollar and paying the 30 cents tax on it. Um, I, I was wondering what y'all's thoughts were and how often you were seeing these type things. I see it all the time with contractors. I've always taught, make the economic decision first, not the tax decision. And for acquisition of vehicles and equipment, it's important to do a capital budget and make sure that your needs and your wants are different. Um, needing something because you've rented a piece of equipment for 14 months and will have continued use of it and deciding to buy it is a need in a capital budget wanting something is not necessarily the same thing. So I think careful capital budgeting is very important, um, but I do. We see contractors making large purchases in the month before their year end, um, which has adverse impacts on their financial statements for bonding, just to try to save what they perceive is going to be a tax dollar without really recognizing what that additional equipment is going to bring in revenue because equipment needs to work to make money for a contractor. You know, even better yet, uh, Bobby, I think one of the things that's crucially important is to do sort of a study of how your equipment is being utilized. And if you are going to do some kind of purchase that makes sense, Maybe you sell off some of the unused equipment or the, the heavily unutilized equipments if you're going to do this to fund those purchases. It might even drive a loss in that process where you're saying, okay, well, I've got a tax loss that I can take it, which is often not the case because of bonus and other accelerated methods of depreciation. However, 
that doesn't mean that's not true. But, but looking carefully at your fleet of vehicles or your yellow equipment and realizing, okay, I'm paying a lot of money uh, on that uh, to service that debt every month is, is by the same token something they should evaluate. And yes, they're getting a deduction for interest, but that doesn't mean we want the interest deduction. Again, like Larry's saying here, if I'm spending a dollar on interest, all I'm getting back is 30 cents, but that that 70 cents is sort of like Cheech and Chong. It's up in smoke. It's gone. Okay, I agree with you, Robert. Um, I think the key is if you see the equipment and it's just sitting in your yard and it's not going anywhere, Got to take a hard look at maybe it's time for that piece to go. And that's one thing I often see is people think if it's paid for, it's not costing you anything. But it is. Idle equipment costs you in insurance and uh, you know, taxes, whatever you want to say. And by being idle, it's not doing you any good. Uh, regarding new purchases, I generally try to encourage contractors, particularly at year end when we're doing tax planning, to, if it's something you're going to buy within the next three months and you've got a ghastly tax burden, you know, but it's something you're going to buy. It's not a matter of if it's just a matter of do I do it today, tomorrow, you know, February, March. But if it, you're going to do it within 60 or 90 days of year end, well, go ahead and do it and let's take the get the tax advantage. But if you're sitting on the fence, you know, or if it's unneeded and you're just upgrading something that you when you have something perfectly good to do the job, uh, keep keep your money, pay your taxes and keep your 70 cents. You know, it's something that dovetails perfectly with all of this, right? You know, it, it matters in the way in which you buy that equipment, whether it be with cash, with bank debt, or going out and leasing it. But again, as we well know, the freight train that's coming down the tracks is the new leasing standard, right? Which has no impact for tax, but it does have an effect in terms of how it affects your working capital. So that's coming up here shortly as well. So we've got, there's lots of variables to consider in all of this. So, and buying toys just for the sake of the tax deduction, I've seen it a million times in my 31 years of doing this. And I love toys myself, but sometimes, as we said earlier, that's just not a sound business. Yeah, I'm seeing a number of contractors working really hard to justify how an RV is a corporate asset. I see RVs, boats, and various things, all of which the bonding company does not care for. And although not related to a directly related to our topic of, of beer purchases, but you know, the investments in land, you know, a lot of my contractors love land. And the problem with that is in a downturn, you know, that's very hard to liquidate. You are not necessarily going to get your top dollar on a quick basis. And um, that's another thing, though, that's often one of those is really, you know, if it's hunting land or whatever, it's really a toy and not a necessity for that business and doesn't need to be bought in, in the business for sure. I agree with you there, Larry. Um, plus. Holding land and holding real estate in general inside uh, a company that's taxed as a corporation, whether a C corporation or an S corporation, has never followed sound tax advice to do that unless it's specifically land that is being developed into lots and you're in that business. Um, 
otherwise land real estate doesn't belong on the balance sheet of a contractor in my opinion where you're getting a long-term asset and you're also getting a piece of that it's going to be a short-term liability so you got to also weigh it all in with what does that mean in terms of your working capital and how that impacts your contractor's license and bonding ability yeah, absolutely um though one other thing i wanted to cover that people often um are are not taking on the fearful is embracing technology they they delay that because uh, people technology is often a challenge for me and, and a lot of the older people um but but that is something that should never be put off i mean i think even in down times a lot of times if it's a slow period for you it's a good time to embrace technology because you have time to learn how to properly use it before you're swamped with work again and so in my opinion i think it's a good time for people to uh, look at the available technologies this is also something that helps you with your overhead often will help you be more profitable even with less volume so i think it's a, a good time for you know all contractors to look at the available technologies and invest where necessary uh what are, are y'all seeing any of that or would you agree with that bobby and robert i do agree with embracing technology that's uh the field of technology and construction is one i followed for a long time technology can help with accuracy in a lot of areas for example um, bim building information modeling or you know use of drones has been the most early adoptions of technologies for constructors uh, the market is changing now there's going to be further and further advance advances in the quality of mechanical um, adaptions robotics etc um, artificial intelligence will drive the accuracy of how the physical models in robotics can be used. And over time, it is really going to help the construction industry with filling in the challenges with the lack of skilled labor. Um, I think Japan leads in this area because the projected decrease in their available construction workforce was so extreme that they've made a big push into investing in technology. In the US, we see um, job site robots now um, that can you know, come out of Boston Scientific and some of the other really great videos you might be able to catch on YouTube about um, their robot dog and, and, and what can happen with it. It's gonna be one of those situations you have to continue, continually evaluate because it's gonna make a difference in how you compete. I had um, a group of um, highway contractors that I work with that went to one of the association conventions about a year or two ago, and they went out to a job site and they witnessed a row of dozers all working the field and they were all controlled by one person in a trailer. These are the types of things that are exist now, and there's more to come. You know, I just want everybody to understand that embracing technology is not your teenage son spending every waking moment texting someone. Um, but those handheld devices, those phones, 
have enabled so many to actually capture real-time data. You know, the technology also dovetails into software. And getting real-time information, as well as eliminating the, you know, the, the paper, if you will, in the process to allow that to be imported into their software. I think it's really important these days for companies to evaluate how well their software is capturing job cost data and helping them manage their businesses. You know, we, we find these days that, you know, data is power. You know, you hear it talked about all the time about information and using that information and sifting it and sorting it to tell the story. But having it real time, I think, has made a real difference for a lot of contractors because they know immediately whether or not they're making money on this job or where the status of it is. Instead of waiting a month to see the data, if you're utilizing technology that utilizes a paperless process, I think it can be invaluable to turn that into a better management tool and allowing you to preempt some of the losses that may be occurring in the field. It is a connector in every way. And, you know, I think COVID has brought about one beautiful thing in the sense that it's forced us to have better technology, to be able to work remotely and get data and connect people and understand how we can have meetings you know via zoom with whether it be our customer or a vendor or our project manager or our field persons they can have communication constantly that way even though i am sick to death of zoom calls it is still a tremendously utilized process and it can save a lot of money if you're not spending the gas, the time, the effort, and the money to go to another location, it's dollars in the bank. Absolutely. I think one thing that I hope fear is driving people to do is to look at their cybersecurity, because I know during the last eight months, uh, I've had multiple clients uh, hit with cyber attacks, not in, well, and actually over the last five years. Um, so I, I do hope that the fear after the pipeline was shut down and other uh, CNA, the largest uh, cybersecurity carrier getting shut down for two weeks. I do hope that there is a fear of that in the marketplace where people are uh, taking a look at that. Um, and I know we're near the end of our time. So I guess I just ask uh, Bobby and Robert for any final comments y'all wanted to make before we have to end. Well, while it's still available, Companies need to take a hard look at the retention credit. A lot of them are still overlooking that and that they may have possible exposure to being able to claim it. And that's a credit that's available on a totally refundable credit that's available um, as a percent of wages. And it's obtained through the filing of the quarterly 941s. We are still seeing companies that are not looking at that, and very often when they do, they are finding that there is cash flow for them available there. The new infrastructure bill that was passed in the Senate 
does cut the retention credit off at September 30. Um, so we do expect that this quarter that we're in will be the last quarter that it will be available. Of course, a company can go back and amend returns, but processing amended returns, we try to clarify with clients. Um, the IRS is running six to 12 months on anything amended that is filed in paper. So that's something to take um, uh, into consideration. It will help cash flow if it's amended, but it will take a while for that cash flow to come in. You know, I don't know if anything about this is uh, economic, but, you know, I've always been a music fan, and here, here's some good advice. You don't pull on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, and you don't pull the mask off the old ran Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. So I'll end it with that. Well, um, yeah, I, I would uh, appreciate y'all's comments and your help, and I agree on the employee retention credits. You definitely need to look into that. I've been amazed at the dollars that um, – our clients have been eligible for, as have they. Um, I'd like to thank y'all for joining us. Join us if you need any follow-up. Uh, please go to our website at cricpa.com. Uh, we try to keep resources there, uh, current articles, videos that you can watch for uh, covering various subjects, articles, and a lot of other resources. Um, and if you need help, there's a uh, call any one of us, uh, Robert, Bobby, and I work closely together as a team for our construction practice, as long as many others in many other offices, and we can direct you to someone who can help you. So I just appreciate y'all joining us today. Thanks Thank so much, Larry and Bobby. If you want more CRI insights or are interested in learning about our firm, please visit our website at CRICPA.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of It Figures, the CRI podcast. You can subscribe to It Figures on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. 